Titus chapter 2. And again, we're talking about the... Um, our main theme here is the grace-filled life, so, so we're just looking at different aspects of it. And, and by the way, you know, I, I think I mentioned this before, but um, we're, we're just talking about li- living out the reality of the Christian life. So, I mean, there's different ways you can, you can phrase that. There's different ways that the Scripture phrases that. Um, but I, but I, I like to think in, in terms of being, um, and this is one way I like to think of it, uh, in terms of being graceful. So, you know, you might think, well, a lot of what we're talking about, in fact, we'll, we'll look at some passages where it's talking about being spirit-filled. That's because one and the same thing. If we're, if we're full of the Spirit, uh, then we, we would be graceful, wouldn't we? Um, because to be full of the Spirit would, would mean to be controlled by the Spirit. And the Spirit, uh, the Bible tells us, one of, one of the names that the Bible gives us for the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of grace. So certainly to be filled with the Holy Spirit would be um, to be grace-filled. So the grace-filled life, and, and, and one of the, the big um, things here, um, themes as we go through this, is just um, the idea of, of living out horizontally the, the grace that we have experienced vertically. In other words, God has poured out His grace upon us and with the intentions that we um, mirror that and that we are graceful in our, in our relationships um, in, in this, uh, as long as we're in this world, in our Christian life. Great, graceful in our, uh, and we'll talk about some of this later, Lord willing, but, but um, in, in more detail. But graceful, for example... Um, in our family relationships, in our church relationships, even um, in our interactions with the lost, with the world. And, you know, this is one of the things I've, 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 I'll just throw this out for thought, but this is one of the things I've been thinking about a lot here lately with all of this uh, talk about um, homosexuality and, and homosexual marriage and all that kind of stuff. It's, going to, it's a real challenge there's a real challenge ahead for us, and and uh, well, it's already here. But I mean, it's just going to it's just going to become uh, more and more. Uh, we're going to be confronted with it more and more and more. And the challenge is this: we we do have to stand for truth. I mean, we can't we can't compromise on something like like uh, something that the Bible explicitly condemns, like homosexuality. But but here's the deal: we we have to handle it um, in a graceful. Manner. So, so our attitude toward, for example, our attitude toward homosexuals, toward people who, who practice homosexuality, um, has to be grace. I mean, we, we have to be prepared to, to um, dialogue with them, to treat them with grace. And how could any more than, or less than that be expected of us? Because that's the way God deals with us. And so that's, that's the, uh, the impetus there. You know, God's grace poured out on us, God's grace to us, and that's the way we have to um, interact with the world. And there's some passages I want to look at regarding that later, but uh, like I said, we'll probably uh, come back to that, Lord willing. Um, all right, so for tonight, that's, again, just kind of the big picture, the main theme, the grace-filled life. And, and tonight, I want to, may sound a little funny, but I want to talk particularly about 
waiting grace. All right, we talked about rescuing grace, and we talked last week about training grace, and we're going to be coming back to those things because because all of these um, little sub themes here, you know, they're they're intertwined and they overlap. But tonight, waiting grace. Now, it may, you may that may sound like okay, you're talking about having the the grace to wait. In other words, to be patient, <laughs> like like wait upon the Lord. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. So God's grace given to us to wait. Well, that is important, but no, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm, I'm talking about what, what he's talking about in this passage, and that is, you can think about it this way, um, the grace of God in our lives while we wait. While we wait for what? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. And, and, then, and then how that, that the grace of God uh, working in us while we wait, what that looks like. That's what we want to talk about tonight. All right, so I'm going to go back to verse 11 again. Chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay. So, um, Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, that's the rescuing grace that we talked about, and and that's the foundation for everything we're talking about here. In other words, God has had grace. He has demonstrated grace towards us, those of us who believe. His grace has been um, poured out on us, been been, um, manifested to us, made known. It has appeared, the the term that um, Paul uses here. It appeared bringing salvation for all people. And then how does that, um, how does that play out? Well, he goes on to say, um, training us to renounce ungodliness. It's interesting there he did, that he does not say, although this would be true, but this is not where his focus is. Uh, it is and it isn't. But it's interesting that he does not say the grace of God has appeared to us Bringing us to faith in Christ or something like, you know, the grace of God has appeared to us, regenerating us. Well, certainly that's true. But he's, he's, just, he's just not stopping there is, is what's happening. That, that, that is true. Grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But it, it, the, the effect continues so that it not only um, brings us to faith in Christ, but it keeps on training us. So... There's the rescuing grace of God. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then verse 12, the training grace of God we talked about last week. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, or literally in the now age. So, So in other words, he's saying the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all, Training us—that's a—that's a—that's an explanatory um, 
phrase. So in other words, how does the grace of God appear to all men? Well, training us to renounce ungodliness and to live godly. So just as I said last Wednesday night, you've got, you've got the negative aspect of the training grace of God. That is, it trains us to renounce ungodliness. And you've got the positive aspect of the training grace of God. It trains us to live godly. And both of those things apply in this present age. So it's in, in the now, is what Paul's saying. The grace of God is training us now in this age. Training us to live now in this age. How is that? Well, again, first of all, to, by teaching us, training us to renounce un, or reject, you could, you could put the word reject there, to reject ungodliness. Well, um, and, or actually here he says ungodliness and worldly passions. What would be some examples of, of ungodliness that the grace of God trains us to renounce or reject? Homosexuality is one, that's right. There are passages that make that abundantly clear. Look at one in a few minutes here, maybe. What else? Living for self. That kind of sums it all up. <laughs> that's, that's right down at the root of it, but that's right. Yeah. You know, Jesus said that we have to renounce all we, all we own, right? All of our possessions. Take up your cross daily. Follow me and renounce everything that you have. So, so yeah, that's a good, good uh, living for self. You gotta, that's, that's got to, for the Christian, that's, that's got to be history. Paul said when he talked about um, fulfilling his own uh, ministry, his own calling, he said, I do not count my life dear to myself so that I may run, <laughs> run my course, right? So... Um, you have to live for Christ, live for the glory of God, rather than living for self. Any, anything else? I mean, you can be specific or general. I'm not. I'm not necessarily looking for particular things here. Just examples. What's the grace of God train us to renounce or reject? What was that? Sin in general. Yeah, 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 yeah. There are all kinds of examples you could think of. You know, one thing Paul hammers on here and other places as well is sound doctrine. So, so you could say the grace of God trains us to reject false teaching, right? Unsound doctrine, or however you want to word it, unhealthy doctrine. That would be one example. Um, and we may come back to that in a moment because I've got some other uh, passages in mind that kind of lay some things out. But for now, that's, that's the negative aspect. In other words, that's what... Um, by negative, I just mean that, you know, it's like the like the negative aspects of the commandments. You know, thou, some, some are thou shalt nots. They're presented negatively. And some are thou shalt, presented positively. So here, the, the negative aspect is the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions um, and to live self-controlled, Upright. Now you get. Now we get the positive aspect to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So, long story short, here, the, the the grace of God trains us how to live, and that includes what not to do and what to do. 
That includes teaching us, you know, what things are unacceptable. In other, in other words, um, teaching us to renounce or reject things that are, that are inconsistent with the character of God and, and um, the will of God and, and uh, you know, God's nature, uh, God's commands for us. So teaching us to renounce, reject those things while teaching us to live in a manner that is uh, consistent with God's character. So, so um, learning how to, to, uh, to operate uh, in ways that are consistent with God's character. Like I was talking about a moment ago um, towards uh, homosexuals and those who, uh, who, who support that movement. Um, it, it is really, really, really going to be important for us to, to deal with, as, as it always has been, but it's just kind of getting highlighted here, but it's really going to be important for us to interact with them gracefully. Gracefully. Instead of thinking that we're at war with them. Because we're not at war with them. You know, the Scripture makes that abundantly clear as well. Who is, who is our enemy? Satan, right? Yeah, our, our, our battle, our struggle, our, we, we wrestle not with flesh and blood. We're not at war with them. Uh, our, our wrestling, our battle, is uh, with spirits, principalities, and so forth. So, um, our our objective with them, and and I'm and I'm saying them because I, you know, I gave homosexuals as an example, or people that support that agenda. But let's just broaden it. Our example with anybody outside of Christ is our 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 objective with them is to um, win them to the Lord, to get the gospel to them. And and um, and and win them to the Lord. Make a passionate plea. Get the gospel to them. And you know, of course, God saves. Not we don't. But uh, we should have a passion for uh, them to be saved. And so we want to interact with them gracefully. And and uh, uh, it's going to be a challenge. It, it is a challenge. So so we need um, the grace of God operating in us to ensure that we do that. All right, so um, there's the negative aspect and the positive aspect. It's training us to renounce and it's training us to, to, uh, to live um, upright and godly and self-control. Let me see something real quick. There's another before I leave off of that. Yeah, that, that word, um, training us to live, the, the ESV here says self-control. Um, the idea there... Uh, is uh, according to good sense. So, so, you know, like sensibly, reasonably. Let me get another translation up here real quick. All right, so, um, so there's a negative and a positive aspects. Now, all this is going on. There's not a period there, the end of verse 12. All this is going on. That is, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation training us, and that's ongoing, that's what's happening, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, training us to live um, according to good sense or soberly or self-controlled, uprightly and godly lives in this present age while, is the idea here, while we are waiting, while waiting. So, So the grace of God is training us in these ways while we are waiting for our blessed hope. Well, what is our blessed hope? Well, Paul tells us right here. The appearing 
of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're here. Christians are here in this world waiting for the appearing of the glory of God. All right? And uh, in other words, the second coming of Christ. We are waiting for the appearing of Christ. Christ is our blessed hope. His, his second coming is what Paul is, um, is referring to here as our blessed hope. So, so you could just say Jesus. Jesus is our blessed hope. But while we are waiting, while we are waiting, we, we have things to do. In other words, it's not, a, it's not a passive waiting. Normally when you think about waiting, um, it's, it's passive. Although, you know, it's good sometimes to try to, try to fight that. You know, even when you're, when you're waiting, like when I'm waiting in waiting rooms like I was yesterday at the doctor's office, I take something to read, so I'm not passively waiting. It makes the, makes the uh, time go a lot quicker. But <laughs> Very good, yeah. In fact, yeah, that's a good, you know, if you, if you look back in uh, verse 12, um, the, the opposite of that um, would be described as um, worldly passions. In other words, you're, you're, you're driven by worldly passions, which would not be sensible, right? So, you know, you're just kind of going after everything uh, in a, in a uh, senseless manner. <clears throat> yeah, I like that. Um, and, and that's, again, what he kind of lays out in, in chapter 3 also, that when he says this, what we used to do, we ourselves were once foolish. Yeah, in fact, the root the root word there is is uh, wise, you know, wise. Y'all know what a you know, sophomore is? Everybody's been a sophomore in school. You, what, what what's a sophomore? Hmm. <laughs> Literally, it's a wise moron. I mean, that's that's the two that's that's the two words there really uh, that are put together. <laughs> <laughs> the sophist, the wisdom, um, and then moron. Moron is fool. Is, is uh, you know, it's, gr- it's from the Greek word that's usually translated fo- foolish, huh? <laughs> no, it's a sophomore. Why? Why is moron? They've had one year of school, so they think they know. They've had one year of high school, so they think they know everything. So, <laughs> oh, but that's true. That's that's the root words there. Why is moron? Okay, so. Um, yeah, that's the same root word there, though. It's translated um, in the King James uh, soberly or here in the ESV, self-controlled, just wise, um, sensible, sensible, something like that, um, according to good sense. Okay, so all of these things, again, while we're waiting, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we, we are... We, Here's the deal. I mean, in a nutshell, we glorify, glorify God, of course. We glorify while we are anticipating the glory that's coming. In, in other words, we're not just here to, to take up space or to, um, to sort of uh, glory in our own salvation. Uh, although, you know, I mean, thank God. Uh, any, any saved person, <laughs> we, we ought, you know, Brother Attaway says uh, he's never gotten over it or something like that. Well, no, no saved person should. I mean, every, we ought we ought to just be uh, um, overflowing with thank, thankfulness to God. But at the same time, 
we, uh, we, we don't just, you know, get off in a corner somewhere and, and do praise and worship. We, we, we interact with, with uh, the world, and, and I don't just mean lost people, I mean just the whole world around us. So, so we interact with our families, we interact with um, people we work with, we interact with church people, we interact with lost people out in the world, you know, in business or um, in pleasure, whatever it is. All of that for the glory of God. Because while we're waiting, we are to um, be rejecting ungodliness and living sensibly, uprightly, and godly. Just the opposite of, of uh, the world and just the opposite of what we used to do. Um, in fact, those, those words for godliness which Paul likes to use, and he uses them several times here in, in Titus, uh, you see it in, in verse 12 and in verse 13. But in verse 12, it's, neg- it's negated with, the, with, the, uh, with the, the, the alpha privative. In other words, it's got an a, 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 like you like I should have brought the, the whiteboard out. But you, you can think of the word theist. What, what is a theist? That's someone who believes in God. That's, that's uh, theist come, comes from the Greek word for God. So, a, you know, when we, we use the term theist, we're talking about somebody who believes in God. You put an A in front of that, and it becomes atheist. Now, what is an atheist? person who does not believe in God, right? Or they reject God. Well, that's the same thing that happens with this word godliness here. In verse 12, it's the term godliness in, in verse, um, I'm sorry, verse 13. In verse 12, it has the alpha privative, you know, little, the A in front of it which negates it. So, godliness and ungodliness. So, in other words, the, the grace of God is training us to reject ungodliness and to be godly or to live godly while we wait for the blessed hope or while we are waiting for the blessed hope. And he gives a little more description here. Um, in verse 14, uh, in fact, let me read verse 13 again. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by the way, um, this is one of those passages that uh, really states pretty clearly the, uh, the deity of Christ. So some people will try, people that, that reject the deity of Christ will try to make that a reference to two two different persons. In other words, the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. But I don't think that's what Paul's doing here. I think he's talking about Jesus. The great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Or our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, had a, just today, I had a guy you know, ask me, so said, uh, you know, don't you... But don't you believe if, if someone's a believer and they're and they're sincerely practicing their faith and and you know worshiping God, but they reject Jesus, that that God will accept them in the end? And I said, well, that that just doesn't happen because they're not worshiping unless they're worshiping Jesus. You, you can't say that they're worshiping God, um, in, not in truth. I mean, I know we do say that. Uh, about false religions, but um, that's just a way of you know speaking and being understood. I mean, we talk about false gods. Well, the truth is there's really no other God but one God. 
a false god is, is a god that doesn't even exist. Anyway, I say, you know, you can't worship God unless you're worshiping Jesus. I mean, He is the living God. So how are you going to reject Him and still be worshiping God? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Now, that's another word with the A privative again. Um, the idea here is uh, um, law, lawlessness. What was that? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no law. Right, right. Namas, law, law, or in this case, lawlessness. In other words, you're, you're living like there's no law. And that's why. Uh, so, so it takes the, the word for law, puts the A in front of it, and it negates it. Law and becomes lawless, or uh, in this case, lawlessness, rather than um, lawfully, or something like that. So, He redeemed us out of that, is what Paul's saying. Christ, Christ gave Himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. And that's, that's what happens at regeneration, and I mean, that's salvation as a whole. He, he is bringing us out of the pit. He's bringing us out of the world. He's bringing us out of darkness, out of death, you know, into light, into life, into Him, into His presence. All right, so, well, what, what would that look like exactly? Does he move us geographically like he did Abraham? You know, come out, come out of the Ur of the Chaldees and, and I'm going to show you where you go. No, but that's a great analogy. I mean, that's what, that's what happens spiritually. You know, he calls us out from among the world and, and, and just, and, and I can testify. I mean, we, we don't know, we don't have a clue where we're going no more. Just like Abraham. I, at least that's the way it was with me. I didn't have a clue where I was going. I just knew God was saying, come out. And, you know, I'm taking you wherever here, wherever, wherever here is. Just like he did Abraham, all right? So what does it look like for us? He doesn't move us geographically. Well, Paul said it real well earlier. He, he, he calls us out of living for self. Self-glory. The pursuit of self-glory. The pursuit of self-satisfaction. He calls us out of that. Now... I don't want to be misunderstood there because Jesus is satisfying and, and we ought to pursue satisfaction in Jesus. But what I'm talking about, he, he brings us out of seeking self-satisfaction, you know, outside of Christ. So we'd be looking for it in anything but Christ. That's, that's where we were when, when the Lord called us. Just looking for satisfaction everywhere. I used to sing a song years ago. Um, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places. There's a picture of sinners. <laughs> looking for love uh, in the wrong kind of love, number one, in all, and also in all the wrong places, right? And God calls us out of that. I mean, we are looking for satisfaction. I should have brought the... Um, nobody has the secret church guide on you, do you? Do you? I want to borrow that for just a minute. There's a great, great quote in there. Rather lengthy, but I'm, I mean, you know, it's a whole paragraph, and I'm going to read all of it. This is C.S. Lewis, and it kind of illustrates, uh, illustrates very well what I was just talking about 
about looking for satisfaction. says it a whole lot better than I can. The New Testament, this is C.S. Lewis, the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, um, I'm sorry, and nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. In other words, he's saying Christ, Christ makes an appeal to our desire when he says, follow me. How does he do that? He promises reward. You know, um, don't treasure up treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt, thieves break through and steal. Treasure up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt and where thieves don't break through and steal. You know, he always he, he appeals to our desire. He wants us to seek satisfaction, but he wants us to seek it in the right place. He wants us to delight but he wants us to delight in the right thing, which, of course, is him. All right, so anyway, C.S. Lewis goes on. <clears throat> if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, and you do hear that sometimes, a lot of times, he says, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics, that's Immanuel Kant um, that he's referring to, German philosopher, and, and the Stoics, that's a, a school of philosophy from uh, ancient uh, Athens, that when we get to Acts 17, we're, we're going to see Paul address uh, some of the Stoics at, at, uh, at Mars Hill. And, and in a nutshell, the, I mean, this is just a really um, brief sum or whatever, summary, but in a nutshell, the, the, the Stoics, their approach to life was, um, you could kind of sum it up with this little phrase we use a lot, grin and bear it. Grin and bear it. So, so they just kind of, it was a fatalistic approach. You know, whatever happens is going to happen, you know, kind of like the Doris Day approach. You know, okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. Except I don't think they went around singing like that, you know, because they were, they, were, they were a little more grim. But the idea was, Whatever happens will happen, and we can't do anything about it, so you might as well just tough it out. Grin and bear it. And C.S. Lewis is saying, unfortunately, a lot of Christians have adopted that philosophy. Unwittingly or un unknowingly. And that's kind of the way um, Christians approach life. And he's saying, no, God wants us to delight, and He wants us to... Um, enjoy. Um, it, just, it, it just needs to be focused right. So anyway, he goes on. He says, those wrong ideas, he says, he submits, um, come from uh, Kant and the Stoics, and is no part of the Christian faith. Amen to that. Indeed, he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, and let me just say they are numerous, and sometimes you'll hear people try, try to deny that they're there. They are numerous. Watch in the New Testament as you're reading, Old Testament and New Testament, but, but we live under the New Covenant, so watch as you're reading the New Testament for promises of reward. It is loaded with them. Um, 
you know, things like rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. And Jesus said that. All right, so um, he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Now, here's where Lewis hits on something, you know, because you, 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 that we just don't automatically think this way. I mean, he, he was doing some good thinking here. You look at, for example, let me go back to the text for a minute here. Um, Paul says in verse 12, the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That, that word for passions is strong. And, and it, it is desires. It can be translated desires, but, it, but it's a strong term. And so I think that's why they use the term passions here. But uh, worldly desires are worldly passions. All right? And you get down to verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 3, and he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, morons, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. And so, you know, you read those things and, and you say, um, and did, did the old King James use lust there? Okay, good. See, lust is a good, strong term. The, the only thing is, a lot of times when people hear that, they, they, they think, automatically think sexual. And, and it's not limited to that. It's, it's, it includes that, but it's not limited to that. It's much, much, much more than that. So, yeah, passions, lust, it's, it's a strong word. So, uh, um, we read those things and we think, okay, you know, he's describing the lost state, ungodliness. Um, that's what we're to reject, renounce. That's where we were before Christ. The desires, the lusts, the passions, too strong. Too strong. Lewis is saying, C.S. Lewis is saying, no, too weak. Too weak. What do you mean? Well, here's what he means. Finish out the paragraph here. First again, he says, Our Lord Jesus finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. And then Lewis goes on. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Lewis is saying, Christ is putting before us infinite joy, saying, come, come and dine. And, and Lewis says, here we are, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, you know, trying to be the richest person in the world or whatever it is. When infinite joy is offered us, like an, and here's the illustration he gives, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. That's the picture C.S. Lewis draws of us. He says, you know, we're like an ignorant child. You offer him a holiday at the beach, but, but it, you know, he doesn't have a category for that. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's never been there. He's never seen the beach. He doesn't know what it means. And so he says, eh... I'm having a good time right here in the slums making mud pies. I think I'll just stick with this. Because he's ignorant. And he's missing out on greater pleasure. So, Lewis concludes, we are far too easily pleased. That is, we settle 
for drink and drugs and sex and ambition. We settle for those things when we could have Christ. Christ. The fullness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Our passions are too weak. All right, so um, it's, it's not that desire is wrong. Thank you. It, it's, it's not that enjoyment is wrong. No, it's not. We're supposed to enjoy. Again, remember the first question of the, of the, the Westminster Catechism we've mentioned several times? The chief end of man, in other words, our primary purpose and goal, objective, um, purpose, reason for being here. The chief end of man is to what? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And it starts now, by the way. I mean, the moment somebody's regenerated, that's when it starts. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Or to say it the way that Piper says it. He changed just, just, just a tad. The chief end of, he didn't change the meaning of it. He just changed the wording. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. All right. So, He wants us to desire. He wants us to enjoy. But He's got to be the focus of it. So, He gave Himself, verse 14, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, that is, living like there is no law, he gave Himself to redeem us from that, from that life of, of um, living, out, living in pursuit of our, of our weak passions. He gave His life to redeem us from that and to purify for Himself a people. Now, you got po- uh, negative and positive again here. That is, Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness there's the negative aspect he purchased us out of lawlessness out or you know all of the ungodliness and and um pursuit of uh worldly passions that that uh that entails all of that and then the positive aspect and to purify so he redeemed us to purify us to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He he purchased us. That's the idea of redeem. Purchased us out of the world, out of darkness, out of death, to be His own possession. But again, there's not a period there. Paul Paul gives a description. He, He bought us out of lawlessness and into what? Good works. We are to be a people, that is, he, he, he redeemed us to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous, another strong word, who are zealous for good works. Good works. So that's what we do while we're waiting. While waiting, we do good works to the glory of God. And Jesus said that in Matthew 5, right? Let your light shine so that your Father is glorified, right? Do good works. When He says, let your light shine, and He's not talking about, you know, just singing a little song, you know, this little light of mine. 
He's talking about doing good works, and he often describes them. You know, you go to Matthew 25, what he, he talks about visiting those that are in prison or that are sick, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked. And then, you know, you think about all the epistles and, and uh, well, the gospels and the epistles, how we're instructed to love lay down our own lives, which is, a, is that's not a, a call necessarily to, to, physical, uh, to be a physical martyr, um, although, you know, we could be called to that. But, but it is definitely a call for every Christian to put your own self aside for the spiritual welfare of other people. All right? So that's good works. Loving as Christ loved us. And in all the ways that that plays out. So he, he redeemed us to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So that, that's a pretty good hint right there, isn't it? Because we're, we're not our own possession anymore. We're his own possession. Paul says in Corinthians, you're not your own. You're, you're bought with a pride. He, he had to remind the Corinthians of that. These these professing believers were engaging in all kinds of stuff. Sexual immorality, homosexuality was going on there. Paul describes it in Corinthians. Um, and, and then porneo, the, porneia, the, the term that gets used over and over and over, is where we get our word pornography today, gets used over and over in, in, uh, in the New Testament to describe any sexual activity outside of the confines of marriage. We're delivered from that. We're bought out of that. We're trained to renounce that. We're trained to reject that and to live, instead of ungodly, to live godly. Here's another, just to paraphrase, instead of unloving, to live loving. Instead of pursuit of our own passions, which are far uh, too weak because they're focused on the wrong subject, Instead of that, pursue the glory of God. Have a, have a passion for lost souls to the glory of God. To get the gospel to people who need to hear the gospel for the glory of God. To, to worship others by inviting others to join in worship. All of these things. Zealous for good works. That's, that's where He's brought us to. We're not, we've already seen... We're not saved by works, right? Look at, look at chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, rescued us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. And we've talked a lot about that. We talked about rescuing grace. We focused in on that two weeks ago. We're not saved by works. We are saved to works. We are saved to works. Amen. Amen. That's the goal. Now, a lot of times they won't want what we have no matter what we do. But, but you know, as long as we're living it, that's, that's our responsibility. You know. you know, if we're reaching out to them, we're getting the gospel out there, we're loving. You know, I was talking about the challenge we face with um, the homosexual crowd and... and uh, and not only them, but the, but the, the people who support it, which is uh, seems to be the majority of the, the country now. Uh, I'm telling you, it's just a huge challenge. Um, well, they're not going to 
I mean, we could do everything right, and and uh, they they still hate us. A lot, many of them will still hate us. Um, and this is one reason it's going to be such a challenge, because it's going to be easy to fall back into this war mentality. You know, all this stuff, you know, that people have been talking for years, we need to take America back. Forget all that stuff. It, it wasn't ours to begin with, and, and we don't need it. We don't need it back. Um, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What we need is to get the gospel out into the world. Preach the gospel. Stay focused on the gospel. Don't let Satan distract us, you know, with with nationalism or, um, you know, I don't know, uh, heterosexual rights or something like that. Let's stay focused on the gospel. We don't have any rights in this world, you know, in one sense, because we belong to God. So um, he bought us. We're his possession. Now, what He's given us to do is minister grace. Minister grace. And I'm, I'm, it's, it's going to be a challenge. Now, we will have to tell the truth. And the truth will often make people mad. It does make people mad. Um, I was telling Leslie just a couple of days ago, Russell Moore, I don't know if you all are familiar with who Russell Moore is. He's making people mad on both sides uh, of this issue, uh, some people. Uh, because um, on the one hand, he takes a very he he is the uh, let me tell you who he is first. He he was a long time uh, uh, professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, colleague of Dr. Chad Brand. Um, but last year, he took the uh, position of uh, president of the Ethics and Religious um, Committee. I think it's what it's called, E-R-L-C, Ethics and Religious Liberty Committee, or com- yeah, uh, of the Southern Baptist Convention. So, so now he works um, in and out of Washington, D.C. all the time, interacting with uh, government, government officials there, representing the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, he's very conservative, so, so uh, he takes a, a very strong stand against things like homosexuality. So he's catching it from... The liberals, of course, and we might all applaud that, you know, uh, in one sense. But uh, on the other hand, he is really trying to go at it gracefully, tactfully, whimsically. He's doing it intentionally, and for that, he's getting flack from some of the old school hardline conservatives who who think, you know, we what we need to do is uh, is have a brawl, you know, have a culture war, have a fight, and take our country back. Because he's trying, and the re, he's trying to stay gospel focused. You know, he wants to see people come to Jesus, and he wants to see the truth represented correctly. You know, Jesus said very plainly, "My kingdom is not of this world." I mean, you can't get much plainer than that. So um, that's the way we have to operate. We, we have to remember what kingdom we're a part of, and our desire should be that they uh, become a part of that kingdom as well and remember who the true enemies of our kingdom uh the, the the lord's kingdom who the true enemy is and of course it is it is satan all right so um we can try to uh pick it up next time but 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 uh just the main point for tonight it's not a passive waiting we are called to be zealous for good works in other words the grace of god works this in us.
in believers. It equips us. The grace of God equips us, enables us, empowers us to be zealous for good works while we are waiting for the coming of the Lord. And you know what? I remember Jesus' parable of the faithful servant. What we want as believers is when He comes for Him to find us doing what He purchased us to do. Right? That's who He called a faithful servant. Alright, we have to stop. But any, any thoughts or questions, comments before we dismiss? Um... I don't. Well, let me answer that in two ways. I, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, how it's going to play out. So, so I mean, just be, just. Yeah, but it, but it's it's a way of saying that um, you know you hear this little sounds kind of cliche, but um, I can't remember even remember how it goes. But sometimes something about the only thing that counts is what we've done for the Lord. Um, in other words, if we're doing this. You know, living for the glory of God, loving people, living grace-filled, spirit-filled lives. That's the that's the good works. That's that's the uh, the brick and mortar stuff. But if we're just living for self, and if we're neglecting um, the job that we have to do here, then that's the wood, hay, and stubble. And so it's, it doesn't have any eternal value, which I think is, is the point of, of, of uh, what Paul is saying there. Now, I do think he's talking about an actual uh, uh, judgment. Now, I, So I don't know exactly how that's going to play out and how the rewards are going to play out. I just know he promises reward um, to those who are faithful. And, and to those who are not, you know, th- what they had done had, had, is just... Annihilated. It has no eternal value because it did not glorify God. We want to be found glorifying God. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Well, certainly, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Of course, I do think Paul's talking about believers there, but still, that would be true of unbelievers as well. In other words, it, you know, the proverb says, the plowing of the wicked is sin. That's a, that's a great example. You know, plowing is just good, honest, hard work. So why would it be sinful? Well, he said the plowing of the wicked is sin. So in other words, if, their heart, if our heart's not right with God, it taints everything we do, you know. All right. Ronnie, you mind praying for us? And we'll, we'll dismiss.